Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I might be, I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let us pray this morning. Lord God, we come before you and we pray that you would be uh, with us uh, in your word. Lord, speak to us through your word. Speak to us in ways that man cannot speak. Lord, I pray that you would be with the presenter, the preacher this morning, be in his heart and mind, and may there be no distraction in his thinking. May we be removed from ourselves that we may see you clearly as we ought. We love you and we thank you for your word. Your word is life. Your word is power. Your word is found life. Be with us now. We do pray this morning, oh Jesus Christ, amen. And you may be seated this morning. Thank you. So this morning, our uh, 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 sermon title is Shining as Lights in the World. And uh, one of the things I wanted to do really quickly before I kind of get into the text and into the scripture is to ask anybody, have you ever, any of you ever been water skiing before, being pulled behind a boat? All right. How many of you skied and how many of you were pulled behind the boat? Yes. How many of you have ever skied, like snow skied before? Okay. So here's the thing. I was thinking of what are those things... Uh, there's, there's several things, and for all of us it can be different. What are those things in life that you literally going to the, uh, the internet, typing a YouTube video to learn how to ski or to go get a book, you know, skiing for dummies, um, how would that be beneficial and yet how it would not be beneficial? I, I, this is the thing I think. When I think of water skiing, I've done both, water skiing and snow skiing. I don't know about you, but there is no amount of book study I can do to be able to jump off of the bunny slopes, you know, and just jump up there on the black diamond and go, let's do it, I read a book. How many of you, would that work for any one of you in this room? Any one of you have ever water skied or snow skied, would it have worked for you to read it in a book and go, let's go? No, sir, no, ma'am. These are, this is one of those things in life that I believe that there has to be something experience. There has something to be done in order to get good at it. You can read all you want. You can study all you want. And by the way, you're going to see in a minute that that is absolutely important. I guarantee you that if you st if, even if you show up to the bunny slopes and you have read a great deal, or if you studied a great deal about what skiing is, it's going to help you. It's going to help you immensely. But just reading and studying it is not going to make you a gold medalist at the next Winter Olympics. It's just not. There's things that you can learn with your mind that your body has to understand. Muscle memory. And, and I'll be honest with you. How many of you know that failure is a good teacher? Hey, um, I know that when I stopped that way, I about lost my head. So I'm not going to stop that way again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay attention to more people and what they're doing because that is the teacher. It's experience. And doing is a wonderful, wonderful teacher. Church, listen, we are to listen, live. We are to live for Jesus Christ in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. What I mean by that is we are to live in full sight of the world that is out there and is watching. And we're not to do this just because of or out of 
book knowledge, as important as that is, if we are to live intentionally in that world out there, uh, we are supposed to maybe know something of how to do that well for God's glory and their good and also our joy. But brothers and sisters, knowing something of it alone is not enough for the Christian profession and witness and faith. It's not either or. I want you to see that. You're going to see that in a minute. It is not either or. It's not, hey, take God's word and be light or just live without God's word and be light. No, 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 no. It's both. And you're going to see how they feed each other in a moment through the text. But it is also not enough to sit where we are in Christianity, nod ahead at the appropriate places, ask Jesus into our hearts through a prayer and get dunked once or twice or 15 times, depending on your Christian history and experience, or if you've ever went to a student camp in the summer. This is to be lived out. It is to be acted upon. I mean, the, 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 the intentional witness of God, Christ's people on the earth. And it is all to be done, listen to me, and I want to be very, very clear about this, not legalistically. You're going to see that in a minute too. Not in the area of religious or religiosity, the doing and acting in, in order to, you'll see in a moment. But that we do this as Christ's ambassadors being done for growth and joy, personally, effectiveness in our witness. That's a desire for the world around us. And ultimately, for God's glory. So listen, there's a lot of the, God's glory, the world's good, and yes, even seeking our own personal joy. All of these things are to be done. I, I remember, I, I've, I've used this before, I, I, I've gotten to the point where specifically there was an area in my life, I don't know where I was living or what was going on early on, I was around Mormons a lot, I seemed to be bumping into Mormons all the time on the side of the street, knocking on the door at Walmart, it didn't really matter, it just seems they were coming out of the woodwork, and I wasn't even in Utah. And there was a moment, like when I was early on in the faith, and, and specifically um, understanding and knowing the gospel, I wanted many people to know the light that I'd found in Jesus Christ. And I tell the story, and I use it often because it was, it, 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 it's something that stuck with me all my life, and I hopefully will. One day, someone came up to me, and they, they listened to me talk and, and, and with a Mormon about the gospel. And this person didn't know much about uh, maybe even the gospel, but specifically about Mormonism and how to intertwine that conversation through apologetic and talking and defense of the gospel. And they looked at me, and they said, hey, uh, what can I do to, to be good at sharing the gospel with Mormons? And you know what I told them? I, listen. Please don't say, don't listen to what I'm about to say and say, he did tell, he told him not to study. That's not Kyle. Kyle says, study hard. I said, the best way, the best teacher to learn how to share the gospel with a Mormon is to share the gospel with Mormons. Because one of the things that I learned early on is when I, when I finally understood the gospel of Jesus Christ for myself, and there was a Mormon came, and I was like, oh man, I've got the gospel. And I was trying to tell the gospel the best I possibly could in that, uh, that new phase of life. I remember there was a Mormon, the first Mormon I ever met, ate my lunch. I mean, there was a similar, the gospel was presented, but they were saying things to me. I was like, uh, I don't know about that one. I just know that I was a sinner and I didn't know Christ and I'm saved. Don't you want to do that? <laughs> it's like, I, I, was I was studying. I'll tell you what happened. That Mormon ate my lunch and, and there was three things that was in my mind. And I remember my wife could probably attest to this. I used to like, be like, locked up and study for like hours, just, just eating and wanting to know more. Because this is the thing. I was like, that Mormon is never going to be able to get me again like that. And I studied, and once I studied, I was ready. 
The second Mormon came in my life, and they tried to get me with the things that the first Mormon got me with, and guess what? I was ready. But you know what that joker did? He threw three other things on me I never knew. And guess what it did in me? Oh, I'm not going to let that happen again. i got to know this. By the time you share the gospel with many, many Mormons through the course of time, look, there's going to be a time possibly that you can be able to do something of some competency that someone else looks at you and goes, how did you get here? Well, you got here by study. You got here by learning and desiring, but you also got here by doing it. Brothers and sisters, fail forward. Fail forward. And this morning, as I transition into the text before us, this morning, we learn that Christianity is uh, it's both and. It's both a head knowledge, it's, it's substantive, it's, it, it's foundational on truth, and yet it is a faith that is also to be practically lived out. So it is a head knowledge with a passion to live for the glory of God with the knowledge at which you have. I would actually say that one feeds the other more. I will say that. If I'm going to say, what are you... Truth always dictates our actions. What we know to be true will inspire or, 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 or provoke us to certain things. It should, if that what we believe is true affects us. And this morning in our text, it is no different. And this morning, if I may, I'm going to read again. You don't have to stand this time, but Philippians specifically 2, 14 through 18. And I'm going to step through a couple of these things. There are three focuses upon the text this morning specifically that I wish to highlight and help us to understand a little deeper before we leave this room this morning. And it says there, do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I'll just stop there, verse 16. The first thing that I want you to see this morning, and I don't have a PowerPoint to give you those points, I'm just going to kind of just put it there and state it. Here's number one. Number one, it says in our text in verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing. That's the first thing I want us to understand. I want us to see in light of this text this morning. Now when you see there in your Bibles, do all things, that literally means in Greek, do all things. It means everything. I think of the passage of scripture, in whatever you do, whether you eat or sleep, do it all for the glory of who? God. Do all things, listen, Listen, without grumbling and disputing. Bum, bum, bum. How many of you complain a lot? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. People will just judge you. Christians are horrible. Many have used this verse here in verse 14 to speak in how we should act and live with each other. And there is practical application of that. I'm not going to sit there and say, that's not what you should do with the text. I think you should do that with the text. A gave example is, Misty, my wife, has often used this with our children. And it's often used in regards to, go make your bed. Do your schoolwork. Go cut the grass. And what happens typically with children when they're asked to do something by their parents and they don't want to do it? And Misty pulls out the golden verse. You know what the Bible says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And the kids go, yes, mother, I will do it rightly now. No, 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 no. 
And yes, I want you to know that there is, there is absolute application for that here. However, this section of Scripture goes far beyond. That's what I want you to hear. Far beyond that application of clean your room and do schoolwork. You see, the text is not so much how we relate to each other as much as it is in reference to how we relate to and we correspond with God himself. This commandment to do all things without grumbling and disputing is, listen, God-centric in nature. And oftentimes when you love God, the second commandment is what? Love others. But let's not get it mixed up here. We start with loving God. This text is in relation, specifically and foremost, to loving God. It says there, do all things without grumbling and disputing. I want you to look at the word disputing first. The NIV actually uses, the, for that word, uh, we get in English, arguing. Arguing. We arrive at these words from the Greek word, which is, it literally means to dialogue. And you're sitting there saying to yourself, wait a minute, isn't dialogue good? Dialogue is good. Communication, good. Talking, good. Well, listen, this is dialogue with a certain flavor. You know what I'm saying? This isn't like, let's talk over a cup of coffee. This is like, don't you throw your coffee at me. It's dialogue that's raised to the end. It's arguing. It's, uh, 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 uh. it's questions. It's, it, it's, it's, it's not nice. He says there. And it's not always considered a negative between humans with other humans. We do it all the time. And by the way, I would also say that it isn't always, it's not good for us to do this with each other. However, listen, I can say all day long about what we should do with one another as far as dialogue in the heated sense. Arguing with one another. But here, I need to state something. However, it is always a negative. Brandon's going to appreciate me saying this. Brandon, it is always a negative regarding humans with God. Look, you can argue with each other, and it's even in itself can become an, a, a very sinful thing. Listen, it is never okay for us, oh man, who was made by the hand of an infinite, holy, good, and just God to argue back to the Creator. As believers, as we do all things, we are literally to do them with full dependence and trust in God, and whom commands and strengthens us for such action. We must not be like Moses. Who we learn in Exodus 4, uh, dialogued with God. When God told Moses in Exodus 4, go and be a mouthpiece of me to the, to the nation of the Egyptians and for my people. And if you remember in that context of that verse, uh, he's sitting there in the presence of God. God is telling him what to do. And what does Moses do? Oh God, you don't understand. I, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not a good speaker. I stutter a lot. God says, what? Don't worry, Moses. I'm going to be your power. I'm going to be your mouth speak. I'm going to touch you, and things are going to be said. I'm God. It's okay. You're just a puppet. I'm, I'm, you, have you ever looked at me? Have you ever noticed me, Moses, what I'm able to do? I'm going to use you. Oh, God, you don't want to use me. I, I'm just not that wonderful. and great. Everybody said, oh, he's so humble. Look at Moses. He's such a humble. No, he's not. Moses in that moment is a guy who literally, he might be looking at himself, but who is he really doubting, himself or God? Moses is doubting God. So much so that God says, God says that his anger was kindled against Moses. 
kindled, which means it was burning. God was literally angry at Moses. And by God's grace and mercy, I'm so grateful that in that moment, God didn't go, God says, fine, I'll use Aaron. Ah. He grumbled with God. He argued with God, and God said, I am angry with you, Moses. You see, when we approach God with such inward responses and attitudes, it is often flows out of the physical realities and or manifestations when we are doing all things with grumbling and disputing, arguing. What typically flows out of that is a flavor of something. And what that comes out usually is it sounds a lot like grumbling and it often sounds like complaining. And grumbling and complaining is what we're seeing here. Paul says to the Philippians, we simply must not act in such a manner before God. We should not grumble. We should not complain before him. And we shall not act in such a manner towards God, specifically, sure. But we better not do it also into a watching world. For this is not what Jesus Christ has saved us for. This is not what he's given us the gospel for us to be and do in the presence of the world around us. You know, I think about today that we live in, guys. It is now in vogue, meaning it's kind of trendy right now to doubt God. Like whole books are written about it, podcasts are being written around it. Hey, look, God's big enough for all your doubts. Just bring your doubts before God. Question. And I'm going to tell you something really quickly because I've got to be very careful with what I'm saying here. I believe that God is bigger than all your doubts. I want to tell you something on a very personal level. I think that it is right to bring your doubts before God. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. But let me tell you this. But when you bring your doubts and your questions before God, make sure that you understand that the one in whom you speak to is the one who has and holds the answers. At some point, doubting and complaining against God, when you already have the answer, is little more than go, walk, go walk, make up your bed. Oh, I don't want to. And when the world sees us respond to God in such fashion, listen, God is not interested in feeding your doubts. It's not the height of spirituality to know nothing. It's not the height of spirituality. Look how spiritual I am. I doubt God at every turn. Be like me. <laughs> no. What kind of witness is this leaving for the world around us? When, when it's become commendable to, to, to approach God and, and ask questions like, but why, God? Or, or, God, I can't believe you, such and such, will do and this and that. Listen, when you do that, you stand in judgment over God. And when the world sees you do that as normal and okay, it makes God very small. It makes you very big, which is the opposite of God-centered worship. That's worshiping us at the expense of God. And typically when we ask why, we ask, I bet you we don't do it. I bet you we have a little whine at the end of it too. But why? Go brush your teeth. But why? I'm not telling them my children, they're perfect. They never do any of that stuff. I want you to see something. If you have your Bibles for, the minute, for a moment, let's go to Exodus 16 and 17, but specifically 16. And I want you to see something. I want you to see something about this grumbling. I want you to see something about this disputing. I want you to see how it, it, it finds itself represented in this grumbling and this complaining. So in Exodus 16, 2 through 8. Exodus 16, 2 through 8, the nation of Israel were complaining, 
grumbling because they had nothing to eat. They were hungry. God said, I'm going to do something. But I want you to hear the words of Scripture. And it says there, bread from heaven at the top there. They set out from Elium. And the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, listen, 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 here's the word, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Stop. Some of you are already laughing because you know. What had they been doing for 400 years? Oh God, please never save us. We have meat and pots and it's wonderful here. Was that the cry? Was that their prayer? Was that their songs? Their songs were songs of deliverance. Oh God, hear your people and rescue us out of the hand of the Egyptians. For 400 years they had cried out the prayer to God. God help us. God helps them. And the first thing they do is, yeah. Pharaoh was so much better than us than God. But none of us would ever do that, would we? Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, starting back from verse 4, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go and gather a day's portion every day, that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepared what they had uh, bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. He has heard your belly aching, your complaining, you listen, your dialogue of argumentation with God. For what we, listen to this, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumbled against him. What are we? Your grumbling is a not, not against us, but it is against who? God. Your grumbling is against God. Uh, if you turn the page, or at least right there, I'm going to read uh, 17, 1 through 4. Just to give you the context, I want you to hear the word grumbling a bunch. I don't know if you notice this, what I'm trying to do. 17, 1 through 4. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of, of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at uh, Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, argued, fought with him, and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted, uh, thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up to Egypt, out of Egypt to kill us and our children? In our livestock with thirst. I love what it says there next that Moses says to God. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Israel continually had a problem. They had a grumble problem, brothers and sisters. They had a complaining problem when it came to the hand of their God. And the nation of Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations of the goodness of God, the provision of God, the one who has parted the Red Sea and we walked through in safety, the one who came by fire by night and a smoke of pillar by day and led the nation of Israel, the one when the people are hungry, he gives them bread to eat and meat to eat and water to drink in the wilderness. For 40 whole years he does this. And they were supposed to be, not there for 40 years if you remember, 
It was only supposed to last a little time. But what did they do? They grumbled some more and he had to stay there for 40 years. God is so mean to us. No, he's not. They grumbled. Think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, remember? Satan comes up to them and says, did God really say? There was a seed of discontentment in their soul and they wanted to be like God. They said, God is keeping us from something good. No, he was keeping them from something bad. And what did they do? They grumbled. Oftentimes I do, I'm not picking on my children today. My children are only representations of all of us as children. And by the way, some of you still are doing this. But I know sometimes if I look at some, I'm not going to pick on any one of them, but if I look at someone and say, hey, uh, go make your bed, uh, go, go cut the grass, go do this thing as a father to a child. This is a father, by the way, who feeds them every single meal they have. Every bit of clothing they wear, they pretty much got from me or from their mother who uh, went through the Goodwill looking for the good deals. Listen, if they got a bike, it's probably from me. It, it, most of, listen, I'm just, they ain't got nothing without me and Misty. That's what I'm trying to say, okay? And they don't care. Ah, oh, man, I bought that one thing at the gift shop. Sure, with my money. And I ask him to go do, make the bed. I ask them to go and do this thing. And here's the thing. What if, what if someone looked at them and said, and I, I'm going to pick on Elijah, bless his heart. Elijah, go cut the grass. And he never does this, by the way. But, you know, he's perfect. Uh, Elijah goes, Elijah goes, ah, oh, oh, fine, fine. Oh, well, I'll do And the whole time he's out in the front yard, he's going. Somebody drives by and they go, your son is just, he's just so awesome. Like, he just, he's so obedient. He just obeys you guys so well, doesn't he? What are you, what are you seeing? I'm watching him kick rocks in the front yard. Look, I may have his obedience, meaning I have his action, but I don't have my son or my child's heart. I have the action of obedience without the heart and the motive of obedience. Does this sound familiar, brothers and sisters? This is the definition of religion. Sit, stand, sit, stand, give, do, give, do, sing, share. Mm. Well, I mean, I do it because I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to do it. What does the world see in us? What do they have from us? I have their outward expression of obedience without their inward joy or expression of true loving obedience. It's all, it's lack substance. And again, this is a picture of religion. This is what you can do as Christians if we're not careful in the way that we give money, brothers and sisters. If it is not done with joy, if there's no connection of motive for God's glory and the fact that I get to be a part of the kingdom of God, keep your money in your pocket and don't give it. That just came from a Baptist pastor. He's not a real Baptist. A Baptist pastor would never say that. He said, give us your money. No, keep your money. He owns a cattle of a thousand hills, does he not? He's always provided and given to his people. We trust his, for his provision, but we seek for people's obedience out of worship, not because of their religious due. For that, was, that would be of no benefit of you, church, and that would be no benefit to the world out there who is lost and dying and needs a fresh touch and a view of what it means to follow after Jesus. Is it full of joy? It could be evangelism. It can be in our singing. All of this is an act of worship. Joy in doing is an act of worship. So what am I saying? This is not a text at which we are to use to help our children to love, respect, and be nice to each other. Use it. It's fine. You can apply it that way. 
It's not, but it's not just to get them to eat their vegetables or clean their rooms without complaining. Sure, it applies. But ultimately, this is a text of Scripture warning us to find our obedience to God from a place of trust, allegiance, and joy in Him and telling the world and letting the world see us do it and do it well. Let me just say this really quickly by side note before we go into number two. In our obedience to God through hearts of joyfulness and satisfaction, I'm going to ask a question. You don't have to answer it, but is he not worthy? Is our God not worthy of such delight from his people? The God who is holy, just, and good. The one who has never committed any sin and created us for relationship and purpose. And yet, in our rebellion against him, our decided desire as humanity to grumble and complain against God in his way because we thought that we needed to get a different sliver and a little bit of piece of that pie that looked a lot better than what we thought we deserved. Sin had entered into the world, brought separation of us and God. And in God's mercy and in his goodness sends Christ Jesus to be the propitiation, yes, the appeasement of wrath for the sin that we all deserve to pay. The penalty of is death. Separation from God eternally. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he saves He ransoms back a people who were rebels, who were enemies of God, who spit in his face, who grumble and complain, who dispute against God. And what does he still offer us? Salvation. Yes, he is worthy. Number two, he goes on to say that we are to be blameless and innocent without blemish. You see this in verse 15. I want you to hear a couple of these words, blameless, in our text means nothing to be leveled against or applied. Nothing can be leveled against or applied to us in the court of law. We are blameless. I'll explain that in just a second. Innocent, the NIV says pure. Literally, it means that word innocent without mixture and or without pollution. It is used in metallurgy or metal workings. When you go to separate true metal from the dross, it rises to the top and you remove it from the top. And what you get left with is the pureness of the metal than what you're trying to, uh, to produce. Innocent, without mixture, without pollution. It goes on to say there in verse 15 that we are to be children of God without blemish. Blemish means without spot or stain. Again, there is a theme in our text this morning of being a people that nothing can be leveled against. That people that are without pollution, without mixture, without stain, that we are pure. And once again, I want you to understand that that purity that comes for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ comes twofold. And you need to know the twofold because it's very, very important. First and foremost, none of us, none of us in this room can ever hope to be blameless. None of us in this room can hope to be innocent in our text. None of us can hope to be children of God without blemish if it was not for the shed blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. If it was not for what Christ can do that we cannot do for ourselves, we would none of us be blameless, innocent, children of God without blemish before God. And in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he calls us sons and daughters of God spotless. He removes it. He makes us enemies, innocent before him. And he takes those who had blame and guilt and sin and he makes us blameless. Not because of anything that we have done or can do or can perceive in our minds, but because of who Christ is, what he has done, and what he can do on our behalf. The religion of do is dead because of the relationship of Christ and the religion of done. It is what Christ has done on our behalf. So I need you to know that first and foremost, when you see me saying, or not me, but the text screams to us, be blameless, be innocent, be children of God with, uh, uh, excuse me, without blemish, 
First and foremost, that is a situation that happens between man and God because of Jesus in the gospel. And there's a trickle-down effect. Because once that applies to us and God in the gospel, it also flows down to man and others in, in our everyday lives, in our families, where we work. Yes, it means to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, even in the midst of a crooked generation, others, man. Again, these are to be inward realities. This is the true character. What are we when no one else is looking? And the motive is always God's glory, first and foremost, and others' good. Witness. Which lead to an outward standing before God and man of being blameless. In other words, being an individual in which there is literally no scandal, no hidden agenda, no side motive. A beautiful example of this, apart from Christ, of course, meaning the life of Daniel, one without salvation the way that we have salvation, the Holy Spirit the way that we have salvation in the Holy Spirit. Yet, Daniel, you need to see something, was being so blameless and pure, he was innocent among the world that they literally had to create and make up a scandal on his behalf in order to punish him in the presence of the king. And he was not a good one. And yet the not-so-good king, worldly, and who did not love God, found love and adoration and care for Daniel. Daniel lived his life in the midst of a pagan culture with a pagan king. And by the way, you need to know something about Daniel. Daniel, they say, was more than likely a eunuch. You use your imagination and understand the rest. Anyone had reason to hate those who oppressed him, what they did to him. To put him into slavery in the service of the king. And this one loved the king and served the king. Not more than God. But in his love for God did so. And I want you to see what happens in the context of this. If you will, uh, turn with me to Daniel really quickly. Daniel 6. I just want you to see this as we move through the text of Philippians. Daniel 6, 1 through 5. Then I'm going to speed up and go to 19 through 21. So you see how this thing ended. Daniel 6, 1 through 5, and it says there, this is the story, the, the history of Daniel in the lion's den. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps would give account. So the satraps are people with extreme power and prestige. They are important. But over these important people are three others who are more important. Daniel, the possibly eunuch, we know him to be slave, is one of them. Sounds like Joseph, doesn't it, back in the Old Testament? But he says here, so the king might suffer no loss. In other words, let them do my work so I can go fishing. That's what that means. Number three, then... This Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over, listen to this, the whole kingdom. Wow. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. Listen, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. This man was innocent. He was blameless without blemish in the midst of a dark world. Let's get him. He's all high and mighty. He thinks he's, we're going to take him down. Well, what, do, what should we find in him to bring him down? What can we find in him? He is so blameless they find nothing. 
They're in trouble. What shall, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless, and here it is, here's the kicker, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. The only way we can get this Daniel is to make the world see that he bows down to Christ or God more than he will the king. Which is the one thing that Daniel could not and would not do. Something happens. Look with me in 19 through 21 real quickly. Unfortunately, these satraps are pretty smart. They got the king to realize that he had to throw Daniel. He had to, by law, throw Daniel into a lion's den. And he goes and he screams out to Daniel. Oh, Daniel, he loved Daniel. He tried for an entire day to save Daniel. And he could not save Daniel. He goes up to Daniel and says, uh, may your God, may you find favor in the eyes of your God who saved you time and time again. Oh, I love it. Who saved you time and time again. And may he once again save you from the lion's mouth. Goes to bed that night. Just picks up 19. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. And he cried out in a tone of anguish. Oh, I love this scene. The queen declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God in whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel says, That's cool. I'm still here. <laughs> Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. Your king threw you in a lion's den. And you're saying, I love you. <laughs> o king, leave forever. This is honor. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found, listen, blameless before him. And also before you. The gospel of Jesus Christ enables us to live blameless before God. Of first importance of the amen. And the gospel has enabled us to live blameless lives before men. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And by the way, if you know the rest of the story, he looks at the satraps. He said that you are not blameless. You are not innocent. You are not without blemish. You have been found out. You are evil men. He throws their families into the den and they don't even hit the ground before the lions go chomp, chomp, hmm. Church, listen to me before we hit our last point. Be bold. Be courageous. Be blameless, be innocent, and also be without blemish. Our message will be offensive. The gospel is an offensive message. But be, be it not ever said of us that we are offensive in our wielding that message. I was thinking before I came here this morning, I was in the office, and I prayed a prayer, and I put it right here in my notes. I said, Lord God, help me not to be used as an instrument of Satan. And I meant that, Pastor Kyle meant that in the context of coming up here in this pulpit this morning. You say, how does that work? What are you talking about? I pray that when I preach the message of the gospel and I speak forth what is true, the world out there is going to hate me for it. Even I might even get some apprehension and, and frustration from people within the confines of our family, which is the people of God. But my prayer is that when they are offended or when they are upset, that it is God in whom they are set to be offended with. It is his word that they're upset with and not my way about me that keeps them from the truth of the gospel. 
May it not be my jerkiness, being a jerk or being whatever, that keeps them from actually hearing the message of the gospel. I want them to come in contact with the message of the gospel and hate it or love it. But I don't want them to ever not get there because they hate me as a deterrent or distraction from the gospel. In other words, what I mean by that is, may we live in a way in which people understand that we truly believe what we believe. Blameless and innocent, without blemish. Three, shine as lights, and you see also in verse 15b, hold fast to something. The command is shine as light. Do not grumble, do not complain. It says be blameless and innocent without blemish. And now we hear it says shine as light and hold fast to something. You see, darkness is what you get when light is removed. This is literally the definition of darkness. The absence of light is the definition of darkness. It's the absence. When light leaves, if I turn off all these lights in the room, it becomes dark. But when light shows up, darkness always flees. Darkness never wins in the presence of light. It never has, and brothers and sisters, listen to me, this is good news, it never will. And here, I believe, is a very real and practical reality. We are not to run from the world. We are not to run from it, at least wholly, as to remove our light in the midst of such darkness that surrounds us. You see, our text is clear this morning. Where are we to shine? Are we to shine in our homes? Yes. Are we to shine in church? Sure. Are we to shine on the back porch with uh, other people who share like faith? Absolutely. But you don't do this alone. No, the text says to us plainly and clearly that we are to shine, Paul says to the Philippians in the midst of much persecution and hardship, he says to them, in the world, in, literally in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, 15b. Shine like lights in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. How many of you where you are this morning, feel maybe, possibly, by watching the 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock news tonight, that possibly we live in a crooked and twisted generation. Hello. That don't take much, does it? I think that the world who doesn't love Christ knows that we live in a twisted and a corrupted world. Brothers and sisters, more about that in a second. But we as disciples should desire for our lives and witness, listen, to rub shoulders with the lost. It is to rub shoulders with the blind. It is to rub shoulders with the dying those who live in darkness. And we're supposed to do that with those in close proximity. What does that mean, brothers and sisters? What I'm trying to tell you, what I'm asking you, and what I'm saying, I think what Scripture is pleading with us, Paul is saying it to the Philippians. Get around the world like Jesus Christ got around the world. Hello, woman at the well. Hello, tax collector. Hello, Pharisee at night. Hello, centurion guard. Hello, Samaritan. Jesus was the light. It says the light, the, the world around us was darkness. When Christ showed up, it says light came into the world. And what he did not just go to his own people, but he went to the nations. He went to others and shined that light to where others could see. This is what Christ did. He is our model. And sadly, many in their Christianity have done the complete opposite to the second goal. We've, we've made for ourselves bubbles and little villages. And I do believe, I want to calm down because I want you to know something. I believe that it is well-meaning and oftentimes it may even be intentional as to not be stained and corrupted by the world. And let me just say something really quick so I need you to know something. Amen, I get that. Please do that. Oftentimes there's wisdom in that. But, but please know this. 
please, please, please understand this. But this is the very thing that our text this morning here in Philippians 2 warns us against. This may be, uh, this is a good desire and it can be wise at times. However, do not forget our text says to shine as light in a wicked and corrupted generation. I sometimes wonder if the world around us has grown dimmer and darker due to the so many, even well-intentioned, light bearers, meaning men and women of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have taken their light and removed it from the world around us. Remember, darkness is simply the absence of light. And light must invade the darkness. Light always runs into it. it inv- and I would say, church, listen to me, invite darkness into your home. You're going, there's, not, why, there's no wisdom in that. I mean, just, just let me finish, please. Before anyone judges me, let me finish. At times, yes, invite darkness into your homes. I'm talking about hospitality. I'm talking about on the back porch. It's, a, it's to have a burger with someone who may not look or think like us for the purpose and the nature of helping them to be people of the light. Go where it congregates. Now listen to me. That comes with an, a caveat. Look, if you're someone who uh, struggles with alcoholism, the, perf- the last place you need to be sharing the gospel with people is at the bar. Okay? If you know that vice is the thing that gets you, do not run into it and go, I'm going to be a messenger here. No, you're going to be dead here. I had someone talk to me this week about something they're struggling with in, 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 in sin and in life. And, and the, the thing I had to say to this person, this person was, yeah, you ain't going to beat it yourself. And they said, yes, that's why I'm coming talking to you. Amen. There is wisdom from running. I remember Joseph, Potiphar's wife. She was like, hey, I'm here for you. My husband's gone. And Joseph goes, nah, 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 nah. She didn't say, come over and sit with me. Let me just, let me braid your hair. Nah, 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 nah. Joseph goes, I ain't playing around with this. Fire hurts. She full of fire. And it says he ran out almost completely butt naked. I love this scene because, man, let me tell you something real quick. If you want to be manly, be running out of somewhere naked. Like, you know, that's don't be running into, get out. Do not play, do not pretend, do not be, get out of there. Listen, I want you to hear me say, Kyle's telling us to go to the brothel and go to the bar and take my children and share the gospel. No, he's not. No, he has not said that. My wife will go home today and go, I can't stand you. You said that to them. That is not what I'm saying. For brothers and sisters, let your light shine before men. You've got to be in close proximity for that to happen. If we are lights in the confines of this room right now, and we have literally, let's say that the world out there is darkness and the light is in this room, these walls may distract us from being light out there. Remove the walls. Remove the walls and let the light shine before men. We have no reason to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have no reason to be ashamed. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's something that is, uh, I want us to understand and know. I think Paul is uh, saying that to the Philippians this morning in our text. Let your light shine before men. I think sometimes, how many of you have ever been a part of a Christian uh, basketball league, softball league, or sports program for Christians? You, you Church leagues. Have you ever heard of church leagues? Church leagues are from Satan, right? 
What they are from Satan, guys. We all mean well. Like when we get together as Christians, we'll, we that way we, we we don't have to worry about like bad language and people losing their minds. And, and what we'll do is we'll invite lost people to come and join us at our church league, and they'll see how we act, and they'll know that we are Christians and you want to be like us. So we're going to do church leagues. We're going to put them around us and our walls, and we'll put it in safety, and they'll come and it'll be great. And the whole community will know Jesus through Christian basketball. How many of you ever played in a church league? I stopped because I started feeling a little icky. I felt like some of the leagues out in the community were, had more light than what I saw in the church league. There are people losing their minds who may be Christian, maybe not. There are some people who say, I'm a Christian because they mean well and they believe it, but then their actions and attitudes are like, oh, you lost yourself. And the witness to a watching world is, this is Christianity. Ooh. Or maybe they go, this is Christianity? Cool. <laughs> Either way, there's a pollution here. This is what I would say. I'm not saying, I'm not saying Christian uh, uh, sports programs bad, but I wonder sometimes, I'm just going to say it real quick, I wonder how much wisdom would be given if we were so intent on developing uh, disciples of Jesus Christ that we are equipping you for the works of ministry. We come into places like this every week because we need to be edified. We need to grow. We need to be healed from our wounds because what we did is that we worshiped so well and were so fed this morning that literally you're going out there and getting beat up with a world who needs Jesus. I would rather us not have a church league basketball and I would rather have six or seven of you men go join leagues out there and share the gospel and the light of Jesus in a dark and trying world. The light is offensive, it's not defensive. Why have we retreated? Why do we feel like we must? Brothers and sisters, the light overcomes the darkness. How, how bright is that light? Do not, in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation, retreat. That's the last thing that we can do in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think of the homosexual agenda of the 90s specifically. The agenda grew into what is now today what we see on television and thrown everywhere and every place that you look. I'm speaking about this because I must. I remember back in the 90s, though, that we on the sitcom, I remember watching certain programs, and when it came up, it was a gasp, and people were appalled. And then we, start, we stopped being appalled, and we started to laugh at it because we, it became humorous. And then when we started to laugh at it, it became humorous. Then we began to smile at it, and now it's become accepted. There was an agenda, but here's the thing. The problem is that the homosexual agenda that's now led to so many other things is this. At some point within the homosexual agenda of the 90s and the 2000s early on, that's what, this is what happened. They began to get unashamed. And if homosexuality was about people being in the closet, they were really proud to come out. You see, we are to be light in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation. And if we retreat, then darkness will take its place. And brothers and sisters, darkness has taken its place. Sadly, the darkness literally is growing today all around us. My question now is, when is the church in the light of the gospel going to come out of its closet? Why are we hiding? Why are we ashamed? We must be in the world and yet listen, not of the world. We are not talking about the light of cultural Christianity. I am not talking about a man-centered Christianity. That is not light at all, and I'm here to say that. We are not even merely talking about the light of good deeds alone, holding the door for older people as they walk into Walmart, getting a cart, smiling at them, using good manners, feeding them. That's important, but listen, do not even Buddhists and atheists and Muslims do such things? They're good people. These are such dim lights that even the world can wield the light of these things. 
Is this the light for which our text speaks? And I would tell you as I'm getting ready to close, no, it's not. Our text, Paul, further quantifies and defines this light that we are to shine. We see this in verse 16. We are not left without an objective reality of this light, meaning we do not have to come with our own definitions to determine it. Praise be to God. That's the thing about truth and light. Oftentimes we like to define things. No, God has defined them. And it says here, shine as light in the midst of a crooked generation, twisted generation. Look what it says, holding fast, holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. The word holding fast, that conjunction of words means, it translates a word that means hold your position or hold your gaze. Stare at, fixed and unmoved, your vision of something. And here it says the word of life. 1 Timothy 4.16 says, keep a close watch. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the, on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. You shine as lights in this world when you hold fast, believer, Christian, to the word of life, transfixed and firm. God's word, Christ himself, and all that he is, and all that he says he is. By the way, when I say Christ's word, I'm talking about Genesis to Revelation. All that he is and all that he does. Listen, this should be, this word should be the gasoline poured on, doused on, the reality of our light living in the world. This is what feeds the reality of light giving. If we are a flame that flickers at times, if you're like me, and oftentimes it happens in life, this is the word of God, the word of life being transfixed ever. This is the foundation of it all. It's to be seen as gasoline on top of us to feed that flame and fire for the world to see. And by the way, it seems to me that it is now commonplace and popular to get away from more of God's word and listen to the themes and the th ideas and the thoughts of man. Those things will not feed and grow your light. Hold fast and transfix, Paul says, to the word of life. Literally let this gasoline stoke your illuminance, your brightness. Churches seeking to be light culturally defined at the expense of God's word all the time. We must not allow God's word to be, be the fuel for, our, we must allow it to be the fuel of our life living. We need more of God's word, not less of God's word. Is what this means. Paul's saying, more please, not less. John 6, 66 through 69 says, I think of Jesus as he looks at his disciples. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered. He, Simon gets it wrong a lot, doesn't he? And then sometimes he gets it completely right. This is a moment where Simon gets it right. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and, and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Is it because of miracles? Is it because of food? Is it because of healings? I think yes, but that's not what it says here. You are the one with living words. You are the words of life. Peter, we are going nowhere away from your word, your presence, or your will. Lord God, when you speak, we follow. In other words, Christian, listen, 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 please. Do not starve the wick of your God-given light in the gospel. Yours as a gift and as a commission in our motive of love and adoration towards God. Yes, joyfully so. By not soaking it in the fuel of God's word. It is not, 
and are not allowing the spark to continually rage more and more in intensity due to more of God's word, people continually seek to grow spiritually with so many things. But brothers and sisters, with our faith, we must feed it, we must water it, we must send oxygen into it so that it may burn brightly, and that is through the word of God. Fan into flames from God's word that life without grumbling and disputing with God, the life that is made pure and without blemish and scandal, a life that runs into the darkness as to dispel it with intentionality and focus. And let God's word be the fuel and the gospel be the fuel to all that we do in Christ Jesus. My conclusion is this. Ours is a world that is a generation of crooked and twistedness. However, we are not to budge nor retreat faced with such alarming trends today. If the homosexual, homosexual agenda has led to so many things, the trans agenda, the things that are can I just say it? I know it's not popular. I, I look at me. Look, I'm trying not to be offensive when I say it. It's an abomination to Almighty God and His plan. He looks on it in disdain, and He does not smile. He does not wink, and He does not wave a flag and say, "I have pride for it." He calls it what it is. It's an offense against the holy and righteous God. And we could easily, as Christians, be tempted to be paralyzed and dismayed. I constantly, Misty and I, as parents, we talk about this as parents. Misty and I go back and forth. There's some days that we're the best parents in the world, and then the next day, if you ask us, we're like, we're such failures. Like, sometimes you're like, I mean, I'm going to write a book. You see how that turned out? Man, Misty, let's get, let's get, let's get on the New York, we're going to write a book. It's going to be awesome. And then the next, the next day happens, and one of our children do the opposite. We're like, we're not going to write that book yet. <laughs> we talk about this often, Misty and myself, about our own children. And brothers and sisters, if you have children in this room, I want to say something really quick in my conclusion. My, conclusion. Um, my prayer is that you're raising your children to be hated. That you're preparing them to be hated in a world that does not know Christ and does not know the light and hates it. For if we're not preparing our children for such thing, they're going to be eaten alive by the wolves and the lion at every turn. We've got to teach them how to fight and to fight well. It's just Satan is like a roaring lion looking for he may devour. We send some of our children in the church out into the world, and Satan literally goes, <clears throat> fresh meat. Now, there's a, there's a dichotomy here. There's, there's something going on here. What does that mean? And that's what Misty and I have to, and every family is different, and I get that. But let's have discussion. Let's talk about these things. Misty and I talk about with our moments where we shelter our children. And we shelter our children, and some people look at us, and we think that we're crazy because we shelter them. Other times, it depends on what, where you're at, sometimes we let our children go to fail or to have that moment. And people go, where's the wisdom in that? Why did you let that happen to your child? And there's a huge dichotomy there of like, where is it to, where do you, when do you shepherd in the world of keeping them away from the world and sheltering them? And, and then where's that where you like went too far and letting them? And all I can say is this, that every one of our children at different stages will be experiencing different things. Because I'm as a father, I'm a discipler. And I go, he can handle, she cannot. He can, they cannot. And you, whatever stage that they are, they're going to be handled and given certain things, like anything else in life. My prayer is that we can shelter them and keep them innocent as long as we possibly can in certain areas. And again, that's not what I'm talking about. Now, if you want practical application of that, talk to me later. But then there are other times where I look at maybe Elijah, who's getting, he's already at the Cape Fear Community College, he's 16 years old. People go, whoa, well, he's going to be experiencing all kinds of things. I say, yes, he's going to experience things that he's going to experience without me when he goes off to college, but now he gets experiencing with me at home. The issue isn't whether or not we do this or do this, we make homeschool decisions or send our kids to public school. The question I have for all of us in this room is, are we going to disciple and love our children? 
get in their lives and ask real questions. See what's on their phones. Ask some questions. Do some research. Pull our heads out of the sand and so we can live as light in a crooked and twisted generation. We've got to be a purposeful and intentional when you got to allow the world around us to see us do it. There is that dichotomy of sheltering and preparing them. But brothers and sisters, we must live our light in a wicked and twisted generation. Prepare your children for such. Prepare them for such. Then they won't be disillusioned. And then that this is normal Christianity. And they will not be dismayed. But hopefully we pray that they have enough understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That what he has done for us in the gospel. For all of us, even our generation or the generation to come. To look and say it is worth it. It has been worth it all. Malcolm Muggeridge, a social commentator, he's an agnostic who became a Christian, said this. Let us then as Christians rejoice that we see around us on every hand the decay of the institutions and instruments of power. See intimations of empires falling to pieces, money in total disarray, dictators and parliamentarians alike nonplussed by the confusion and conflicts which encompass them. For it is precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting when every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and not forthcoming, when every recourse this world offers, moral as well as material, has been explored to no effect, when the shriver, a shivering cold, the last twig, twig has been thrown on the fire, and in the gathering darkness, every glimmer of light has finally flickered out, it's then that Christ's hand reaches out sure and firm. Then Christ's words bring inexpressible comfort. Then his light shines the brightest, abolishing the darkness forever. Amen. Our hope is in him. Here in our Philippians passage this morning, this morning, Paul says that when his friends in Philippi meet adversity with patient contentment and winsome witness... He tastes the fruit of the hours of his own life and he looks back at his own years as he pins this text in a prison cell awaiting his death to the Philippians who are in a pagan land trying to be Christ's ambassadors. He looks at it all, his teaching with tears, the hardship and persecution he endured, and he determines it has all been worth it. Verse 17 even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, meaning I'm going to die. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Weird. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Brothers and sisters, the grace of Christ is making former pagans in Philippi into the people of God that Israel should have been. Instead of Israel's complaint and criticism of the way in which God has, was running their lives, they can now exhibit trust, hope, and joy in Him. This is brightness shining. And it is all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? We are His ambassadors of light. All because of what Christ has done for us in Christ Jesus. Wow, I wasn't planning on preaching that long today. My wife says, going, you added some things. Yes, I did. Can we do something real quick? Can we stand again in reverence of this word? There is so much truth here. God is good.
I'll do 14 through 18. Next week, we'll look at 12 and 13. But look, brothers and sisters, as we've heard what we've heard this morning, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad, and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He is worthy. And as we celebrated last week at Easter, I made a statement, and I meant it. We celebrate Easter every week. We long for the day that every tear will be wiped away from our eye. Every pain and hardship that we have will soon be gone. This will be a memory. If It won't even be a memory. Because we'll be staring at the goodness and the glory of Almighty God for eternity. And he will be enough.